0: The blood of Jesus, the journey to the cross and beyond. Most people refer to this time of the year as the Easter season. In reality, Easter is not a good description of Resurrection Sunday. Easter is based on a pagan title, meaning eggs, and I'm not sure that's really what Jesus wanted to communicate. By his resurrection. During his three year ministry, Jesus made and accepted extraordinary claims about himself. When asked point blank if he was the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus answered affirmatively. And you certainly can read more about that in Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64. He declared himself and God as one. A statement that outraged his Jewish listeners. They considered such words blasphemous, and they almost stoned Jesus on the spot. John 10:30 30 through 33 clearly describes this scene. Jesus had to know that such claims would cost him his life. In fact, he told his disciples exactly what would happen to him by saying this, We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. That's found in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. Well, yet he headed to Jerusalem, straight to the cross that awaited him there, knowing, willingly, and sacrificially. Let's take a look at the journey to the cross. Starting with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, all four Gospels focus exclusively on his final week, a third of Matthew a third of Mark, and a fourth of Luke, and nearly half of John's writings, all focusing on this particular event. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what has become known as Palm Sunday raised the crowd's messianic hopes yet again. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. With palm branches in hand, people lined up the road, shouting Hosanna, which means salvation at last. Surely this was the moment many assumed, but then people noticed Jesus was weeping, not waving a sword, according to Luke 19.41, hardly the behavior of a conquering king. What followed this event was a strange turbulent week. On Monday, Jesus moved through the temple courts angrily turned over the tables of corrupt money changers and merchants. Then on Tuesday, his disruptive acts from the day before prompted fierce arguments with religious leaders at the temple. Later on Mount Olives, east of Jerusalem, Jesus prepared his followers for his departure. Jesus told them about the coming signs of the end times his glorious return, and the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. The Gospels don't specifically mention what happened on Wednesday, but we do know that sometime during the week the religious leaders plotted against Jesus. They also found a willing conspirator by the name of Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. Judas accepted 30 pieces of silver from the chief priests in exchange for handing Jesus over to the authorities. On Thursday night, Jesus gathered his closest followers in an upstairs room to share the Passover meal one final time with them. He used the occasion to institute a new meal, the Lord's Supper. This meal would commemorate his body broken and his blood spilt as a sacrifice. Jesus explained to his disciples, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Read more about that in Matthew 26, verses 27 and 28. Before the gathering concluded, Judas slipped out of the room in order to carry out his plan to betray Jesus. Just after the Last Supper with the disciples, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter, James, and John to pray. Jesus was visibly in deep anguish as he contemplated the horrific death he would soon face. It says he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke 22, verse 44. While his closest disciples slept, Jesus wrestled in prayer, alone, prostrate, drenched in his blood, sweat. Through prayer, he was given strength to carry out the Father's plan. Luke 22, verse 42, says this, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Strengthened with holy resolve, he rose, just in time to meet Judas, and the mob that had come to arrest him. In the wee hours of Friday morning, the Jewish and Roman authorities sent Jesus to illegal nighttime trials. Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman prefect of Judah, sentenced Jesus to death. Jesus was stripped and flogged by Roman soldiers skilled in the brutal business of execution. The men took turns punching him, spitting on him, and mocking him with a purple robe and a crown made of thorns. Then they led him to Golgotha, an infamous execution site along a major thoroughfare outside the city walls where they hammered him to the cross. Between two convicted criminals, I might add, Jesus died a gruesome and agonizing death. Yet even then, while on the cross, Jesus prayed for his executors, saying, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Shortly before the beginning of the Sabbath day, which started on sunset on Friday, the Roman soldiers, overseeing the crucifixion, realized that Jesus was already dead. Key note here, though, death by crucifixion could sometimes take days. The soldiers removed his lifeless body from the cross and on the orders of Pilate released it to Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin who had come to believe in Jesus. Joseph wrapped Christ's body in a clean linen cloth and placed Jesus in his own tomb that had been cut out of a rock. Matthew 27 verses 59 through 60 clearly shows us this piece of truth. Joseph, with the help of Nicodemus and probably others too, rolled a big stone over the mouth of the tomb. At the request of the Jewish leaders, Pilate sent soldiers to put an official Roman seal on the tomb and stand guard there. Please, followers of Jesus come and steal the body and tell everyone that Jesus had risen from the dead. Most of us know how that story turned out. We're not sure if these soldiers fell asleep or simply were blinded by the Holy Spirit, but we do know this event occurred. Now looking at the empty tomb, early Sunday morning, several women who had then followers of Jesus arrived at his tomb, hoping for an opportunity to properly anoint his body. The start of the Sabbath on Friday evening had kept them from being able to perform this customary burial act. What they found in the tomb left them shocked, stunned, and bewildered, but ultimately overjoyed. The tomb was open, and empty. Grave linens were lying loose. Angels appeared saying, matter of factly, He is not here. He has risen. Just as He said. That's a quote right out of Matthew 28, 6. Well, and then the followers of Jesus, both singly and groups, had actual encounters with the resurrected Jesus. Not a phantom or a spirit, but in the form of actual human flesh that people could actually touch and see that he is real, and that he has been resurrected, and he kept his promise. The gospel accounts of resurrection are chaotic and hard to piece together, and why would we expect anything else? People were running, telling others, weeping, trembling, feeling fear and joyful, and some even doubting. Skeptics have offered all sorts of theories for what they can think in their own human minds what really happened here. Obviously the disciples stole the body, or women got confused and went to the wrong tomb. Or perhaps Jesus never actually died on the cross, but only appeared to be dead. Then in the cool air of the tomb, he resuscitated, pushed a large stone away, overpowered the guards, escaped, and conspired with his followers to pull off the greatest ruse in history. Nope, that's not what happened. None of these scenarios are remotely possible, and certainly none of these theories can account for the transformed lives of the disciples. Consider this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus had willingly surrendered to the authorities without a fight, his little band of close disciples disintegrated. When pressed his disciple Peter had sworn that he didn't even know Jesus. Just a few followers at the moment, mostly women, had watched the crucifixion from a safe distance. To Jesus' followers, it was over. The life of their teacher, their Messiah, the movement that he started, is over. Only, it wasn't. Something unprecedented and cataclysmic happened early Sunday morning. In the dim light of day, a timid, demoralized group of disciples morphed into a fearless band of witnesses. In just a few weeks' time, Peter went from angrily telling a servant girl that he didn't know Jesus to standing in front of the same powerful men Who had sentenced his master to death, boldly insisting that Jesus was the Messiah, was alive, and was the only means of salvation. What can explain this, other than the truth of the resurrection of their Savior? Reviewing his promise to come again, some passages that you might take some time to read and study is Mark chapter 16, Luke chapter 24, and Acts chapter 1. About six weeks after the crucifixion, the resurrected Christ gathered his disciples one final time and told them of their mission, the Great Commission. The famous passage of Matthew 28:19 says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Then they watched wide-eyed as he rose into heaven. As they stood there staring, angels told them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go, into heaven. That message wasn't only for a handful of disciples in Galilee two millennial ago. That message is for all believers in Jesus, then, now, and in the future. Believers in Jesus wait and watch eagerly for his return, because he will come at an hour when you don't expect him. But in conclusion, we need to keep this in mind. But while his followers, and today we are indwelt followers, we are literally filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is why we can claim to be temples of the Holy Spirit, and literally house the mind of Christ. So while we wait, there's work to do. Jesus himself said the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's right out of John chapter 6, verse 29. We're called to put our trust in everything that the Bible reveals about Jesus. Jesus that he was and is the eternal Son of God, both fully God and fully human, that he lived a perfect life of trust and obedience, that on the cross Jesus willingly offered his life as a payment for the sins of the world, your sins, that he was our sacrificial substitute, taking our sins and God's just punishment for those sins upon himself, that he grants forgiveness and gives new, eternal, abundant life to all who put their faith in him. The next time you hear or read John 3.16, maybe you should consider just how significant this statement truly is. When he said, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John tells us that God is love. Therefore, when God gave us his only son, it was God's greatest act of love. After Pentecost, the disciples and 3,000 other people were able to receive the Holy Spirit into their mortal bodies. Pentecost became the day of marking true indwelt Christianity. Now when people become born again, they receive the Holy Spirit into their mortal bodies. Since the Spirit is the same Spirit that is in and lives within Jesus. Today, when we talk about having the mind of Christ or releasing the life of Christ from within, the Holy Spirit is that active being that has taken advantage of human minds to release the life of Christ. Being born again does not mean you're following Jesus. That's just a piece of it. Once you're born again, the old man, the old nature, is crucified with Christ, according to Galatians 2, 20. So since our old man, or our old nature, has been put to death on the cross, the life that we now live, we live by the faith of the Son of God that has been put within us by way of the Holy Spirit. There's a huge difference, listener, between following Christ and being indwelt by him. The world today is focusing on being followers of Jesus while they are ignoring the power of Pentecost or the true born-again experience. I truly want to thank you for joining us today in this special message. This is Resurrection Sunday Remembrance. This is not Easter. Nowhere close to it. This is a day we have set aside just simply to remember the power of resurrection and how the true, authentic Christian can receive the Holy Spirit, which is a born-again experience, and begin to live out the life of Christ. We really want to encourage you to take this message and forward it to people that you believe need to hear this reminder, this story of the true pathway of the cross and beyond. Until next time.